All right, welcome to the A Game Podcast for a Thursday episode with my buddy Dana Cornell from Cornell Capital Holdings. This guy is so smart. I had seen him speak at a mastermind we were at a couple of years ago when he was still with Morgan Stanley, he was still doing financial planning. And uh, he got up there and did a presentation that completely changed the way that I looked at rate of return and the way I, I structured most of my talks with investors after that. And I was asking him to get on, but a lot of things going on with him. You can tell he's very busy when you guys look at him. Check his website, check his Instagram, check his company's Instagram and website. They are all in the show notes and you'll see all kinds of amazing things that him and his company are doing. Past projects, current projects, the ways you can work with them. Um, so there, there's a lot of opportunities there. These guys are, are, are very smart. There's a couple other guests they have coming on that are already in this company with them. So they have a great team of some of the top-notch guys. So very impressive. Um, I was very excited to get him on and just uh, have him talk a little bit about the things that he initially talked to me about when we were at that mastermind. So we cover that. We cover a lot of other things. I think it's a great, great episode with a lot of good points. We, we cover self-storage. Obviously, that's a big thing that he's focusing on right now. But we also talk about a realistic rate of return, things you can learn from fear and rejection. I mean, this is a guy who went from walking around door knocking to build up his Rolodex in the snow in the winter in Buffalo, New York, which is not fun, and just learned how to get door slammed in his face and keep going and went up to be a very successful financial planner for Morgan Stanley, managing over $1.3 billion, and then left that to go and start his own thing at Cornell Capital Holdings, which they're doing right now. So super impressed with this guy. He's a good guy, cool guy, very smart, very successful, my kind of dude. So I really appreciate him coming on and uh, I respect him very much personally and professionally. So thank you very much, Dana. As usual, this is sponsored by Nationwide Business Capital Group. So check them out. If you're looking for money for your real estate deals, go to nakednick.com slash links. And on there, you can click under affiliates and get discounted Naked Warrior Recovery CBD with the promo code A-Game, or you can email Marianne directly and tell her the A-Game podcast sent you over. As usual, please go to nickandnick.com slash links and subscribe to this podcast. You can get to any platform you want on that, including YouTube, Spotify, whatever it is you listen to your podcast on or watch your podcast on. This podcast is probably on there. So please listen, subscribe, and share. And if you want a free checklist on how to bring more value to your buyers as a wholesaler, an agent, broker, whatever it may be, for that free checklist, go to nicknicknick.com slash biggerpockets for your free checklist. Thank you very much. Uh, big UFC card coming up this weekend. One of our Saralongo guys, Rob DeWallace, really is fighting. Tough fight, Marlon Marais. Big win for him. We'll uh, send him up there. So he's got a, a tough opponent, but I have a lot of confidence with Matt Serra back in his corner and Ray Longo and that whole crew and the guys he's been training with getting ready for their fights like Ally Quinta and Aljamain the Funkmaster Sterling get ready for his title fight. So definitely check out UFC this weekend and support the Saralongo crew and Marab, who is one of the nicest guys in the game getting it done and uh, continually moving up the ranks in UFC and, and earning everything he's getting. So very happy for all those guys. Very happy to see Matt Sarah back in the corner and very happy that you are listening to this episode. So thank you very much. Check it out. Um, email me, podcast at nicknick.com. If you have any things that you want to cover, definitely check out our Facebook group. I'm going to try to be more active on that. And if there's any topics you want to cover, I will definitely make sure I cover them in solo episodes or I bring on people who are specialists in those to get on and give you guys straight from the horse's mouth. Thank you very much. A-Game Podcast, Dana Cornell. Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business 
along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-game. All right, my guest today on the A-Game Podcast is a prior financial advisor for 15 years and was an executive director at Morgan Stanley. He holds a SEMA designation, which is a very big deal, and managed over $1.3 billion at the time he left to go full-time into real estate. He's been recognized as one of Forbes' 2021 Best in State Financial Advisors and is now the founder and CEO of Cornell Capital Holdings. They specialize in Class A self-storage facilities and stabilize multifamily commercial assets with a mission statement of helping their clients buy back their time and peace of mind. Thank you for coming on the A-Game Podcast. I've been really excited to get you on and talk to you. Welcome, Dana Cornell. Nick, thanks for having me, man. We've been looking forward to this for a while, so I'm glad to be here. Yeah, man. So, um, well, I mean, I, I heard you do a presentation Man, it was probably well over, I mean, COVID, definitely over a year or two ago now, but it, it stuck in my head since the first time you did it that I've been like, man, that was just amazing. It was such such an impactful hour of the way you just talked about rate of return and just what the realities are for what you're really getting versus what people think they're getting. And every time I have a conversation with an investor now that wants something unrealistic, I always think about the stuff that you were saying. So I've been really excited to get on and talk about not only that, but what you're doing, who you're doing it with, all the things you're doing on the self-storage side, it's just all very impressive. But for people who don't really know your backstory yet, can you give a quick 30,000 foot view on who you are and where you come from? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm born and raised a little south of Buffalo, New York. Um, deferred law school, decided to try finance first. Definitely cheaper, the two options. I did not come from a super wealthy background. Um, my dad owned a construction company. My mom was a kindergarten teacher. So pretty normal background. Um, went to work for a company called Edward Jones. I knocked on 1,800 doors to get to know people and just ask them where their pain points were and let them know I was starting a new business, which was uh, exciting in one sense and wildly scary at the time in another sense. Um, but you learn a lot, man. You talk to that many people quickly, you kind of get a sense of how to kind of navigate that world and see a common message of where people are really, you know, kind of cloudy on finances or struggling to figure out answers, that type of thing. So that got me off to a fast start. I was only at Edward Jones for about a year and a half, got recruited to what was Smith Barney then became Morgan Stanley. Um, and when I ended my career there, and while I was there, I really adopted alternative investments in general because everybody had their stock and bond guy. And they had it for the last 30 years or so. And I'm the new guy coming in. And I came in right before the crash of 2008. So, you know, when I had switched to Smith Barney at the time, I was there just a few months, 2008 hit while I was building a business, which actually became a huge advantage for me. And especially talking about alternative investments and the consistency you get from those versus publicly traded investments. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about that. That's kind of part of that presentation we went through. Um, so that's kind of how I built my business. A few partners had since retired. So at the end of Morgan Stanley, long story short, I, I, to your point, I, I was managing about $1.3 billion of private client assets, um, had made executive director title there under the age of 40, um, which not a lot of guys do, quite honestly. I was not fortunate to recognize by Forbes, all that good stuff. Decided just to walk away from that because 
we could talk about my frustrations in the traditional wealth management world all day long. That's a whole podcast in itself. Um, but I just, I just wanted to make sure I was doing the right thing for my clients and people were really just asking me for, for consistency of returns, right? So you're trying to plan somebody's life for the next 30, 40 years, especially a lot of them were business owners had full control over how they earned their income. And if it got off track, they could, they could correct the course themselves and you're putting all of that trust onto somebody else. And that really hit hard for me. And my parents went through the same thing as my father being a business owner. So I lived it. I'd been through it with other people. I went through 2008. I didn't want to do that again. So I looked for other ways to kind of combat that. And really, that's my, that's my why, right? Why I do this is I don't, I want to take away the insecurity and the cloudiness and all of the, the kind of gray area of wealth management and really give people what they're looking for, right? Something predictable, something they can understand and a way to truly build wealth consistently. And that's what we talked about in that presentation is the consistency of returns. So that brought me to Cornell Capital. So I, I launched this firm. I made the leap from Morgan Stanley. People thought I was crazy, um, but I was on a mission to do what I thought was the right thing for my clients. Um, brought over a commercial banker with me brought a partner at a major law firm here in New York that has a extensive background in real estate, um, legal proceedings. So that's kind of my core team here. And that's how we run due diligence on any commercial investment for our investors. So we're kind of that middle person there because I found there was a huge gap in that marketplace. If you even had access to institutional investments, it was very hard as an investor to find out all the information you really need to look at to make a good decision. So we kind of pull those two sides together and act as an advocate for the investors, along with partnering with really good developers that have good track records and are doing the right thing for people. So long story short, that's where we came from. That's where we're at now. That's outstanding, man. There, there's so many different points that we could take that in. One of them is that uh, I didn't realize that you had put all that 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 time into knocking on doors to talk to people to try and build up your client book that's extremely impressive and i'm sure very frustrating but it rings true a lot of the stuff that you hear and i find myself saying cliches all the time on this but they're true man like to to get what you what other people want you have to be willing to do what other people won't do and i know so many yeah. people that won't call 1800 people they won't go knock on any doors like they want all those things but they don't want to put the work in to do that have you always had that drive to go out there? Because it, it does take a certain type of person to really go out and knock on that many doors and take the door slamming and the screw use and then just smile on your face and go right to the next door and try pressure again. Yeah, yeah, it, it was interesting at the time. I think I was fortunate to be put in that situation when I was young and didn't really know better <laughs> in, a, in a sense. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, I came from, a, I was highly competitive in sports, played football in college. Um, the greatest thing Edward Jones did was let me compete with everybody else, 150 people in my training class. And I was not going to be the bottom. I was going to be the top of that. So, um, and that comes from my background. You know, I worked with my father since I was 15. So hard work and just kind of putting your head down and, and getting it done is in my DNA. Um, man, I was out there. I had long underwear on under my suit wandering around in Buffalo, New York winters when I started just trying to meet people. So it was scary and nerve wracking, but it also wouldn't change it for the world. That gave me some of the best experience that I could ever 
ever could have compiled in the first two years of being in this business. And it really kind of paved my trajectory to get out to a fast start. So it was great. Yeah, those New York winters are not fun at all, man. I'm spending a lot of time now in Chicago and I was like, what am I doing? Why don't I go south? This is so stupid. But what did, <laughs> what did all that tenacity and resiliency and rejection teach you about just business and life in general, about pushing forward and handling the negative to keep it positive? Yeah, I mean, so it, so really once you learn, so you could you can take it two ways, right? So the way that worked was if I talked to, 25 people and I really had to probably knock on 50 houses to get 25 people home. If I could find 25 people a day, two of those people would do business with me, but that meant 23 people wouldn't do business with me. So it's 23 no's to maybe two yeses. And those yeses only come from multiple conversations. So all I knew was I could either take the no's to heart or just take it as I'm one step closer to a yes, right? I just got to get through the through these to get to a yes. And that's kind of shaped my, my entire mindset to your question. You know, I mean, if you just keep pushing through, you're going to break through that wall and break through that barrier and hit that goal regardless. If you do the, the blocking and tackling of what you need to do every day, you can really simplify a lot of things. People may get bigger in their heads, but if you just do the basics and do them well and do them repeatedly and consistently, you're going to get to where you need to go. So that's how I looked at it as a no or a, you know, closed door or somebody who didn't want to invest or whatever the case may be in business in my setting was just getting me one step closer to an even better client down the road. So. That's so timely because one of the things that I absolutely can't stand doing that I know is probably the most important thing to do is tracking KPIs. And I know starting out, if you can go into anything, you know, whether it's real estate or, or, or just finance or just anything in life, let's call it acting, you know, going on auditions. If you know that it's going to be X amount of auditions before you get casted into a role, it's going to help you set yourself up for like, okay, I'm getting through this, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. How were you tracking that initially? And did you just have to take somebody else giving you that data when you started and tell you like, hey, Dana, it's going to take you, you know, 25 like appointments to get one, or is that something that you just started tracking from the beginning and had to kind of keep yourself positive and know, like, I'm going to get through this one. Because what I find is with most things, like I'm a big jujitsu guy, I find it with jujitsu a lot. People don't stick around if they don't get the, that first taste of victory, just like with real estate. You know, if you're not yeah. getting that first deal and you don't know that it's going to take 50 and you quit at 48 just because you go, this doesn't work anymore. You know, it, it, was it the same thing in that world that you find most people quit before they get that first kind of client locked in? Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I mean, that was the, the program was really designed to do that. So Edward Jones at that time, they would take everybody that met a certain criteria and then they let the program weed everyone out. And most of them dropped when you had to go knock on doors. Most <laughs> people wouldn't even do it. Right. It sounds crazy. I'm not doing that. So that would weed a lot of people out. The actual numbers just kind of came and I would credit that to mostly to a mentor of mine that I found early on in the business. He was a senior vet at Edward Jones, just reached out to him out of the blue for advice because I had admired him and I'd seen him speak at one of our events. And he helped me kind of break it down and start to mold that mentality. And then I had to put the numbers to it because my area is pretty rural. It's not, I'm not in New York City. I'm not in Chicago. I'm south of Buffalo, New York. So, you know, 
<clears throat> there's not even as many doors to knock on as you possibly could. So I had to kind of figure out my KPIs. But once I did that, it gave me a hell of a lot of confidence to know I was on the right track. I was doing the right thing. And if I did that by the end of the day and found 25 people, I knew I felt good that I did what I needed to do to keep moving myself forward. I think that's so important, Manny, you know, for, for anybody doing anything, if you're not checking the KPIs, especially starting out, I know it's not fun, but it, it really is the only way to know what's working or not working in your business, knowing when and how and why to adjust. And it's just one of those things that in real estate, I, I, I've been in real estate for so long and I wish I would have known more business practices like that, you know, 10 years ago instead of three years ago, because it really changes everything. And, you know, for you coming from that background and switching I think it's probably something that a lot of clients can relate to because I feel like people are always waiting for the perfect time to make a move yeah. or do something like when this happens, then I'll do this. And then when this happens, then I'll do this. Um, so I have a kind of two questions for you on your side of it. Did it always feel like it was never the right time to jump ship on Morgan Stanley and go into your own thing? And what was really the final decision that gave you the courage to push forward? And then do you find those conversations happen a lot with your clients that you send them project after project after project and opportunity after opportunity and next one day and i promise next one you know the sky's too blue today the sky's not blue enough today i'll get you on the next one yeah um yes to both so i'll break those two down yeah i mean i so i had started investing in syndicated projects myself personally the last five or six years aside from what i was doing in alternative investments under the morgan stanley umbrella so i was building my confidence there um, the last two years, and I had joined um, Mark Evans DM, his mastermind, the DM family, and he really was the one that encouraged me that, you know, his, his quote to me that I'll never forget is the money's in the money, right? If you have the skill set to raise money, you can apply it to essentially anything in business. Why don't you do this? This is your passion. This is what you're trying to get to. Just jump. You're going to prolong this. And I did. I struck, I strung it out for basically two years trying to justify, well, I just, well, I'll wait till this or this stock vests of mine or this person comes off retirement or we hire this person so the team's okay. Um, and some of those things were legitimate. Some of them were just pushing off the inevitable. So quite honestly, COVID came, we're all working from home. Um, the pressures of 900 individual households relying on me for advice that I really didn't feel like I was giving them my best, nor could you give them their best because there's just so many people. Um, and I had truly felt like I found a better way to build wealth. So that really started to bother me as I could kind of get a little bit of time away to really kind of take some time to think about myself and what am I trying to accomplish and what am I about? And that was finally when I just said, to exactly your point, man, there is no good time. There's always going to be a reason why now is not the perfect time, which means now is the perfect time because you just got to rip the bandaid off and do it. So that was my story. That's how I finally made the decision is realizing that I can continue to do that forever. Um, and there's no better time than, than now to start that. Um, and with clients, yeah. I mean, especially on this side, funding real estate projects, it's all a you know, who has liquid cash? Do they like the project? I do a deep dive on who they are, how they're invested, what's their mindset, what's their experience with private real estate, that type of thing. Very similar to the financial planning background I came from. Um, but yeah, people still have hesitancy. They still have, you know, well, if it's, if it's this one or if it's, if it's this, 
or if it was in this state, then I'm in, then call me, I'm in, you know? So, you know, you kind of got to temper those unrealistic expectations that, you know, grass is always greener on the other side or down the road and help them make a good informed decision when you can. But sure, I mean, you can apply that in most aspects of people's lives, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you, the two probably most shouted out people that give credit for like, this is why I made a change or this is why I scaled up. Collective Genius and Mark Evans are probably on this podcast. Anytime yeah. I talk to somebody who's like really impressive, they're almost always like, I'm in Collective Genius or Mark Evans said something to me one time. So right. shout out to the DM. Uh, you know, he's even pushed me for, he's just got a way sometimes. And I'm sure it depends on who you are and how you take it. But like, he says things in a way that can, uh, it's either going to offend you or it's going to change you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's so, yeah. it's so straightforward and no nonsense. And, and I do like that. And it does come from a place of, um, you know, sometimes people say stuff that's a little, a little harsh and a little direct. And it feels mm -hmm. like they're saying it more for them. And you could tell that he's kind of saying it to slap you upside the head and be like, like, listen to me, knucklehead. Like, I'm saying this for you. And I'm, like, for me, it just works that when he says stuff, I go, okay, I heard you that time. Maybe I didn't hear it the other way this person said it, yeah. but I'm yep. going to do what you just said. So shout out to him for sure. But you just, you just touched on something that I think was just the perfect segue into the next thing, which was you talk to investors that have an unrealistic expectation. And that's really what I come across every day is people call me and they go, okay, you know, I want something. And when I have that initial conversation of like, here's realistically what you're looking at with your time frame, with your budget, like with your experience, with all your little uh, risk analysis things in there and the things you will and won't do. And then you send them something and they either just never respond or they take forever to respond or they always come back no matter how good the deal is, even if it's almost twice as good as what they initially told me they would be happy with. Oh, you know what? I was looking for something a little bit more aggressive, a little bit better, a little safer. And so I go, okay, great. Do me a favor. Tell me what the last deal or the last two deals you bought were that were anything close to what you're looking for now. And if you have that, I'll buy it from you. It's never yeah. the case. Oh, it's a 12 cap. I really was looking for a 15 cap. Oh, it's a B class. Oh, I really want an A class area with a value add potential that I can get a 22% cash out. It's like, I'm sure you and everybody in the world do, but you're never going to find that. Or I find like people make an unrealistic return so they can keep putting off, like you said, the fear of having to make the decision to jump in. And when you talked about what a realistic return is and how the people who are chasing these like 14 caps and these crazy things that are, you know, probably on paper when you look at them, really not what they're saying they are. They're going to take a lot of turnover or you got a 15 cap, but you're in a place that somebody's getting shot every other week. And you talked about how the non-sexy numbers really are the sexy numbers when you flip them on their head and look at them long-term, I have never looked at returns again the same. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you and let you just kind of deep into this, but I find this absolutely fascinating and I'm literally going to make everybody who wants to do business with me listen to this after. Like <laughs> the first thing I do is listen to Dana here talk about this. So take it yeah. away. So there's a, there's, a couple, there's a couple layers to that, right? So what I've learned over the last 15, 20 years of working with individual investors or small institutions or family offices is you almost have to reverse engineer it. So when you lead with a project or a deal that opens up the door for them to always want, it's a natural tendency. They want more, they want more return. They want less risk. They want a better, this better, this better, this versus I do a lot of work up front to pre-profile these people of, hey, what's acceptable? What's been your history before, to your point, right? What are you used to getting in returns? What's your ideal return and time frame? How does that fit and why is that right for you? How much money do you have to invest in private investments like this? How does that relate to your whole picture? 
So I've kind of profiled them to what's realistic in their mind prior to showing them any of these other investments. Because our investments still, you know, the private real estate, the self-storage that we're doing, it's pretty consistently 15 to 20% annualized on a three-year hold, and it's very tax efficient. If I could have taken that to my clients at Morgan Stanley, I mean, most days I got people saying, hey, if I could just get a consistent 6%, right? Because at the end of the day, people might think they want one thing or another. What they need is something different. And if you're trying to use any of these investments to build repeatable income and consistently growing true wealth, you need consistency of returns. And that was the presentation that I showed you guys in that meeting a couple of years ago. And what people don't understand, and I would encourage everybody that hears this and everybody you deal with, um, there's a huge difference between percentage return and consistency of return. And I'll try and summarize that presentation in you know, maybe two sentences, you'll get the gist of it. So what I had presented on, and if you really boil down the numbers, and this was one of the things that really started to dishearten me in the publicly traded investment world, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, everything is done in a historical percentage of return. Well, first of all, the last 10 or 20 years may look similar to the next 10 or 20, but the timing of those returns is not going to be the same. So if the timing is off, that rate of return or that average could be way different than what they're showing you and leading you to believe that you will expect versus a consistent return. So what I did, you compare the S&P 500 and that's averaged it's up a little bit now because we've had a few good years, but let's call it seven and a half percent over the last 20 years. If you just averaged a straight 7%, because again, remember the average, that means one year you're up 30%, one year you're down 19, the next year you're up 11, so on and so forth, averages out over a long period of time to be that 7.5% for the S&P 500. Versus if you were in a real estate project and you had a 7% income payment coming in consistently over that same time period, you have one, one fourth more money in your pocket. So if you'd put in a million dollars and let it run for 20 years and you either got a consistent 7% or just averaged what the S&P did, you would have the difference is $3 million in the S&P 500 and just over $4 million from your real estate investment income because you don't have the negative down periods. That's what drastically throws a percentage off. That's why mutual funds and everything else present in percentage of return because it's misleading in that fashion, right? So if you can put consistency of returns and you have to put the dollars and cents to it, that's where you're gonna see the difference. So I could give you a consistent 6% versus an average of 10% annualized. And if I offered people that in my previous life, they would wanna take the 10% all day long. You have more money in dollars and cents taking the consistent 6%. So that's really was kind of the genesis of me starting to relook at all of this stuff when I realized that. And now our self-storage, for example, they're offering, uh, most deals are a 10% annualized interest payment while, while they're stabilizing the project. 
not including all the excess return value and equity that's created. So if I could go back to those clients and say, look, at a minimum, you're going to get 10% that's pre-funded in an interest reserve for three years, they would have jumped at that, right? So that goes back to the setting expectations ahead of time, because if you tell them 10, but they can get 15, they're not going to feel happy, right? So it's all kind of a relative uh, comparison to where are you coming from, where are you trying to get to, and the more consistent and predictable you can be, that's where people win. The, the inefficiencies is where people get killed. I think it's great. And like, you know, like you said, if people are understanding that when you tell them, I could tell you 10%, but if I give you a stable, a, like a, a repeatable stable 6%, you're actually making more money over the long term because of the, the fluctuations on the other side. And I, I, I always bring it back to like analogies and stuff in baseball. It's like if you're swinging for home runs all the time. The, the person who leads the league in home runs every year usually leads the league in strikeouts. So their average overall is going to be lower. Whereas like the guy who just is hitting singles over and over again, all year long, those teams are going to win championships. Like that's really where it comes from. And I think, like you said, a people initially, because they'll get sent some crap deal from somebody that says it's, it's a certain return and they probably don't even look at it. They just read in the, in the headline of the email that it was a 13 cap and they go, well, I want a 13 cap. It's like, but did you really look at that? Because you think you do until you realize that that's a pro forma number and the, the time and the effort and the headaches and the stress you're going to have to put in for six, 12, 18 months to get it to that. You're going to go, wait a minute, I can just give you money and make 6% and I don't have to kick out drug dealers and evict people and fire them. Like, you know, when they get into how labor intensive it is to really have some of those pie in the sky cap rates and they realize the less headaches and the no stress and just the getting checks once a quarter or once a month or once a year, I think the game starts to change when they really start to realize how dirty they have to get their hands. I agree 100%. I mean, a large, that's been interesting to me. So we built a large pool of, of investors across the country. And mostly I've done that by social media. And what was interesting to me, one thing I didn't expect was a lot of the money that we've placed this year has come from either current or former but downsizing landlords that actually, when we talk, they run through the numbers and realize, man, I'm not, at the end of the day, plus if you factor in your time and a cost for your time, you're really not making what you think you are with all of those headaches versus just truly making it a passive investment. Let somebody else do the work and go along for the ride. So that was an interesting new revelation as that I kind of built that network. I didn't expect that as much anyways, but it's been pretty cool. If you have been kicking yourself that you didn't start investing in real estate sooner, whether you're beginner, intermediate, or advanced, any way you're looking to get it on a residential, commercial, land development, wholesaling, fix and flips, whatever it is, let's find a way to get you involved in some projects, get you some properties, whether you want to sell some properties to me, whether you want to buy some properties from me, whether residential, fix and flip, cash flow, multifamily, whatever it is you're looking for, let's figure out a way to get you involved or find a way for us to partner up on some deals. Go to www.nicknicknick.com, go on the consultation tab and figure out how to schedule an appointment to talk about where you fit in if you are not sure, or you can just reach out to me on any of my social media channels. If you go on www.nicknicknick.com slash links, you will see all the different ways to connect with me and figure out how we can start to work together, make it happen. Everybody that invests in real estate always just says they wish they did it sooner. Best time to start is today. Yeah. And, and I, I tell people now when they call and they're, they're looking for stuff and they say, well, I want a 10 cap. I go, okay, well, great. To get to that, we're going to have to buy it at something and we're going to have to put these in. So are you okay 
with putting in some some bridge money to get it there? Are you okay with doing a little bit of work? And most of the time, if they say no, I go, okay, well, think about this then, because if you want something that's already stabilized and already cash flowing, and you're literally just going to park your money, you're going to have to come down a little bit or go into an area that you probably don't want to be in. And then when you start to look at it, even just something basic right now is when you're looking at interest rates. And I've heard Tim Brass talk about this so many times, but you get something like that. That's, you know, like you said, a seven cap, a seven and a half cap, and you lock in long-term low interest debt that, especially if you're over a million and now it's not recourse. And you look at like exactly what you're saying of how that gets paid down with the debt reduction. And you have all these tenants paying down your principal over the course of 10, 15, 20 years, that 7%, it becomes so sexy down the line when that Mm -hmm. asset is owned almost free and clear. And you look at what the income coming in actually is. And then you look at what you've actually built out, how you can keep refinancing, that becomes a piggy bank. I, th- I think it's something people don't think about. They look at the first or the second year and they don't look at what it really is over your 10, 15 or 20 versus doing nothing. What is your yeah. cost of capital then? So for people who aren't jumping in, do you ever have that conversation of like, look, you don't have to do any of this, but let's have that conversation of if you don't park your money anywhere, what did it really do for you during COVID when your, your job you know, washed up or you didn't have any income coming in? Did you have any assets or anything, any investments coming in that were actually paying you besides the thing you were trading your hours for? Yeah, 100%. So you're hitting on an important part of a lot of my conversations, right? And really, I can boil it down to most people don't, and whether it's it's real estate, like you're mentioning, and they haven't done the proper due diligence and thought process to extrapolate that out, or it's a publicly traded stock bond or mutual fund, you'd be surprised how many people don't know what they actually own and why they own it. Right. And I always laugh because there's a commercial that was on a while ago, but everybody's kind of carrying around a big orange number, right? And they're comparing what's your number, what's your number, meaning what's the number you need to be financially secure. And the point is everybody's number is different. But the second part of that is you're, you're kind you're trying to accumulate a top line number of assets to, to generate income, right? You're looking to replace your income. So it's not how much can you, you scrape and save to then put in investments that are unpredictable or not well thought out or tailored to you. It's how much, how efficient can you be with the assets you have and how much income can you consistently generate from those? And that's one thing when I unpacked what I was doing, you know, I'm a certified financial planner by background. I would do a financial plan for someone and we'd show them fairly conservative averages in the markets. So if, if they made five and a half percent over the life of 30 years of their plan, I could pay them 4% in interest and it left some cushion for inflation. And we only ran it on maybe not all of their assets, maybe 80 or 90% of what they had. So they had some free cash if something came up. Well, when I compared that to most of our real estate investments, I can give you the same income on 30% of your savings, which takes all the pressure off the rest of your money. You can do whatever you want at that point, be more aggressive, be moderate, put it under your mattress. You still have matched your income with it. So I think if people realize income is the end goal that you really need and work it backwards from there, it would alleviate a lot of the problems that come up for investors down the road. 
I love that, man. And speaking of real estate and assets and stuff, let's talk about self-storage because I know that's a little bit of a unique niche that not everybody's doing. You know, people are, you know, most of the people coming on, they're wholesaling, they're doing single family fix and flips, a lot of multifamily, but I haven't had a ton of people on that are talking about self-storage. And I've heard you talk about this a few different times and you seem to know it very well, but talk about some of your exit strategies and the pros and cons and some of the things you're doing on the self-storage side. Yeah. So, you know, when I, when I made the transition, I decided, and Joe Evangelisti was a big influence in that. Um, so he and our third partner, Brian Brogan, we kind of sat down and just mapped it out and started to really kind of dissect where is the best subcategory of commercial real estate that we can give our investors consistent returns, but isn't too overheated. And you can make the case right now, you know, everything goes in cycles, right? Multifamily, maybe now is not the ideal time unless you're finding a great off-market project, so on and so forth. Um, where five, six years ago, it was a little bit easier to get in there and the numbers were a little bit better. Self-storage is an asset class that to me sticks out for a couple of reasons. One, there's a huge shift in, in that market in general. So I believe 60% of that entire industry is still owned by small mom and pop operators. There's only a few publicly traded REITs that focus on that. And then there's a lot of regional guys of different shapes and sizes in between. But it's also coming from what used to be hidden in an area and dark and dingy and nobody really wanted to see it to buildings that are looking like something, you know, like an office building. And on a main thoroughfare, people, you can read study after study of the psychology that people want to be able to drive by. They feel secure that they can at least know where their stuff is at, even if they don't stop, right? So there's a lot of trends changing. And then you can talk more about baby boomers downsizing, going to condos, and the younger generation not wanting single family homes. So all of these kind of trends are, are shifting in that subcategory of self-storage. And on top of that, it's a very efficient market class. There's not a lot of moving parts. There's not a lot of turnover, unlike a multifamily when a tenant moves out. You can raise rates on a, on a higher percentage basis and quicker than you can in a multifamily apartment. Um, and you can find areas, because if you look at the demand, the demand is, is is projected to be three times of what the current supply is for self-storage units over the next 10 years. So that's a hell of an opportunity to come in and fill those gaps and be strategic in where you're placing these facilities. And we do mostly new construction because we can come into an area that's already full, essentially, that is is lacking any opportunity to fill more self-storage and put one of our facilities in there. It's nice and new and on a main street. Um, and it has just, just an advantage over the rest of the competition. So that's what we're focused on right now. And then to your point on exit strategy, it, it affords us two different exit strategies that are somewhat built in, which I always appreciate talking to investors. So one, once it's up and stabilized, we can refinance at the higher valuation we've created from adding tenants, increasing net income. Or two, we can sell to one of the publicly traded REITs. So we typically use one of those REITs to be our third-party property manager. Their business model is to be the third-party property manager and acquire up and running facilities. So by partnering with them and building to their size and specifications, 
we have a natural end buyer already built in. Then it's just a matter of what makes financial sense. Is, is a refi more attractive for our investors or is an outright sale or a partial sale? So that's kind of how I looked at it, that if you have multiple exit strategies and a very efficient from a cost standpoint, asset class, and then you have those, those demographic changes within that industry, that's set up for, for a lot of opportunity over the next five to 10 years. I think that that's awesome. And I think it's fascinating too. The reverse engineering is something that keeps coming up in this conversation. When you're talking about going and finding those end buyers, are you doing some research on them first to find out what their buying criteria is and then backing into that for your purchasing? Yeah, so it's interesting. So we've, we've had enough success that now, two in particular of the publicly traded companies, they'll work with us on the front end. Nice. So they'll help us with the feasibility on, does this site make sense? Is this a good, good fit for you guys? Is this, this potentially attractive down the road for you? Do you want to sign on as third-party manager? So they're, it's nice to have a publicly traded company and all the firepower that comes with that, fact-checking all of our due diligence <laughs> and research to feel really confident when we're putting up a site and when I'm taking it to my investor pool that, number one, it's going to work and the numbers make sense. And then we do have that, that exit strategy because we've already partnered with them on the front end. Now they're managing the property. Then it's just the decision of how do we want to handle it on the back end. So awesome. well. yeah. on, on the financing side, so I guess that obviously depends on kind of what you're doing, but are you, uh, you're raising private capital, but are you partnering that with like a bridge loan or upfront cash to, to get it or like a construction loan if you're building? And then yep. are you looking at it the same way on the refinance? Like I know on the single family side, it's a lot different. I know in commercial, they care a lot less about the actual borrower and they look a little bit more of the property. I imagine it's a little bit of the same thing. Like if you're hitting a certain LTV with a certain DTI, you're going to already know that if you bring it to X, Y, and Z lender, they will give you the refinance at a certain rate for a certain LTV. Exactly. Yeah. So we know all the, all the metrics we have to hit to get a certain top line valuation after it's stabilized at a certain point. So within reason, we can predict exactly where we're going to be because we're real dialed in on our cost to build. So we have a, a really good idea. Um, we work with Marcus and Millichap and Chris Litzler down there in Cleveland to help us kind of figure all this stuff out, which has been excellent. Um, so we, yeah, we have a forward-looking projection of where our stabilized valuation should be. And you know all the pieces of that puzzle you've got to put together to get there. So it lays out that roadmap. So, okay, if we do these five things and hit these five targets, this is going to be our stabilized value. And then we're going to have that opportunity to take that equity we created off the table by refinance or take it out to market and sell. Is there a key that they look for? Like I know on um, a multifamily, like it's a minimum of 90 days, but obviously if you go six, 12, 18 months, it considered more stabilized, you can get better rates. What's the, yeah. the average that they're looking for to see like as far as a percentage occupied and for how long to give you that refinance? Yeah, so we typically need to get it over 80% occupied and we'll let it stabilize for at least a year and a half. That's kind of our minimum standards that get us to where we need to be. It takes us about a year to truly build the facility, get everything buttoned up, ready to be leased up. It takes maybe another six to eight months to lease the property up, and then we'll let it run for the next year and a half or so to really build and, and make the NOI repetitive enough that banks are consistent and comfortable with it. That's awesome, man. Are you seeing, because obviously you don't have tenants in there that are responsible for as many types of utilities like you would on a, 
on a multifamily property or residential property, is there a lower number that you can run and cover your expenses than you would on a different type of asset class? Oh, much so. Yeah, I mean, the expense ratio is is minimal, quite honestly. I mean, you have some utility bills, which are low, right? Lights aren't on all day long there. You have very few staff you need to run the property. Most of it is all automated now by key card and access code, all that type of thing. So um, about half our facility is climate controlled. So that adds a little bit of a cost there, but there's more value there, right? The rents are much higher in those. And the other half is your traditional non-climate controlled storage. But when you look at a percentage of cost relative to a multifamily property, it's substantially lower. And then you add in all the other variables of, you know, you don't have to repaint, remodel, fix holes in walls, all of that stuff when somebody moves out. Um, and you have more control over people paying the rent, quite honestly. Um, the rules on that are different in self-storage than they are you know, an apartment complex. So much more efficient across the board. That's actually something I've never asked about that I think is, is an interesting question is, what is the eviction process like in a storage unit if somebody stops paying? Yeah, so don't quote me on this. I'd have to refer <laughs> to the actual laws, but basically it is if, if you go past a certain period of time, two, three months, um, maybe more, but something like that, you essentially, the owner has the ability to lock the unit until they're paid. And if they don't pay after a certain period of time, they acquire the content and you can auction it off. So it's not, it's, it's very different than, you know, what, what most landlords have gone through the last year with not having to pay rent from tenants and that type of thing. And just having to deal with that. Um, Self-storage didn't have any of that issue. Now I'm guessing that's why you find a, a good attorney as we were both probably make sure you do to write up good leases and make sure that stuff's all spelled out. So there, there's our CYA for that. <laughs> that's right, my man. That's right. How has, uh, how has the change in labor costs affected your construction? Yeah. So, you know, it, of course okay. it's affected. Materials. I apologize. Not labor materials. Yeah. Materials. Yeah. So steel is our biggest material, of course, at an all time high. What we had been doing for the last year and a half or so, really we're taking what at an all time high and then adding a 20% buffer on top of that. So we're already an all-time high from what we've been told. And we hired a steel analyst to help uh-huh. us um, really gauge how much to buy and when to buy it. So we don't have to just go out and buy everything in bulk for the project. We can stagger that to make sure we're spreading our cost and getting the best average price we possibly can, knowing that we've also got a 20% contingency budget in there if things do happen to go higher. So that's how we've been able to do that. Of course, our costs are up a little bit, um, but we're still building these facilities all in with current prices at 62, 63 cents on the dollar. So, you know, we're, we're still fairly efficient, relatively speaking, as far as cost to build. Nice. That's awesome. You know, I'm reading, a, I actually am reading Joe Evangelisti's book as well. So shout out to him. I hope to get him on here as well. But I'm also, I just started the road less stupid. And, and a big thing that he was talking about in there was constantly asking like, what am I not seeing? What don't I see? Somebody who doesn't have the background in self-storage, I always think, you know, what, what I always want to hear is what could go wrong because everybody's always on social media showing all the yeah. you know, cars and like the stuff. But 
I really want to know, like somebody like yourself, like when I ask you a question, you go, you know, I hire an expert to run this analysis or we do like, that's the stuff that I want to hear is you bring in people to cover those bases and you build a team to make sure there's a system of checks and balances. What are some common things that somebody should ask about what the cons or the risks are of investing in a self-storage unit? Yeah. So this is one of my favorite questions, right? So this also really builds a lot of confidence and conviction when you're talking to an investor and you address these things head on. So you know, a few things can throw a project like this off, which really are no different than any other project. But longevity risk is one. COVID extended projects last year, which COVID is COVID. That's not going to be the case, hopefully very often, but those things happen. There's general construction delays. I mean, don't let anyone kid you. These are still construction projects. There's going to be delays in material. There's going to be delays in the labor and just getting things done. Um, all of that, like I mentioned to you, that's why we hire an analyst to help us figure out the steel prices. That's why we have construction management on site and Brian and Barry Sherman, two of our, our key people are on the ground every two weeks rotating on each facility to make sure things are, are going properly in addition to our guy that's on the ground full time. Um, you gotta make sure the numbers work, right? It's easy to, to kind of inflate numbers to your point earlier and make a project look a little bit better than it is. I wanna see, maybe not worst case scenario, but that's kind of where we come in to help the investors. I don't wanna see the, the rosiest picture of how this could go well. I wanna see where it goes wrong financially. And what if interest rates rise? And how does that affect your long-term refinance and your, your construction debt? You know, those are the types of things that we're running here in our office prior to bringing an investment out. And with the attorney on staff, we're checking all the legalities and making sure it's documented properly and that all the right protections for the investors are in there um, and everything's fully disclosed like it should be. So those are really some of the main things that stand out. There's always kind of one-offs. What if the developer, they all die in a plane crash, you know? Um, and that's why Joe and I have separated legacy developers and Cornell Capital because if that ever were to happen either side, we're still there to replace the developer or they're there to replace us if something happened like that. So those are extreme things, but you know, still something you need to account for. I love that. And I think asking those questions at the end of the day, you know, people can what if themselves into or out of anything. And with anything that there's upside, there's always going to be a certain level of risk. You risk walking across the street to go get coffee. You risk getting hit by a car. And, you know, I've, I've heard people just over years, they come up with these crazy things of, like you said, I remember we were teaching a, it was like a real estate investment event and it was like 20 of us there and like we were all willing to like jump on and do like weekly calls and stuff and the person just started asking all these crazy questions about where we live and i was like why is she asking all these things and she was literally trying to calculate like what are the odds of all of our planes going down and she's left and i was like come like it was just the, this nutty thing and it was like you obviously don't have a healthy risk tolerance or a realistic risk tolerance or expectation. So this is probably not the right thing for you, but at a certain point, you just have to weigh it out and say, okay, like, what are the odds of those things happening? What's yeah. the, what's the down, which, which is exactly like I was just saying in that book, it's, you know, what's the upside, what's the downside and can I handle the downside of this? Like, what would I do? And I think that those are really important questions, which like you said, when you proactively go after those, I, I think that that's an awesome thing. And uh, a couple of just last things here, I know you don't have all day, but market wise, we had like a multifamily that we had some some land in the front of it. And my buddy Jared was helping me figure out like, what can we get this land sold for? What can we do? And I walked across the street to a storage unit 
And I was like, hey, like, how full are you guys? They were like completely maxed out. And we own like three or four other ones in the area. And they're all maxed out because this whole area is basically like military or downsizing. So people have all their crap. Yeah. And I was like, well, if I could get this zoned, would you be interested in like buying land off me and building? They were like, 100%. And I was like, wow. Like, I just never even thought of that. And then it's like when you buy a new car and you see it everywhere, then I'm like driving around the area and I'm like, holy crap, like there's storage facilities everywhere. And then you start to realize like some of those things when people are like, well, we don't want them in our town because they're ugly. And then you realize that they don't all have to be ugly. And there's all these different ways you can come up with ways to get them approved and put them in there. So for your side of it, like what are some things you're looking at to pick the markets to build or invest in these storage units? Yeah. So, I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing we deal with all the time. Right. And, and the way that we've we've sourced our projects, um, and I'll credit Joe with this just to touch on this, is he created a program that we basically train certified field agents. So we have agents across the country looking in their respective markets to find those types of things that we would never be able to efficiently come across um, to source deals for us in that way. But big picture, we're looking at how many facilities are in the area. It has to be a class A or class B size location. Um, population has to be of a certain size. Household income has to be of a certain size. Um, and then we're looking, like I said, at, at the supply and demand and how long have these facilities been full? What's been the turnover on these facilities? What's the, you can calculate the amount of demand per, per household. Um, those types of things. So that's kind of the deep dive that we're doing. But for a big picture, it's, you know, is there a lot of people there? <laughs> Do they have a decent amount of income? Is there a shift to downsizing? Um, which is why we're heading to Florida next. Um, and does it make sense to put another facility there? You know, and if it does and the zoning is right, which the zoning is a big piece, that can be a, a long process and an expensive one too. Um, so if there's an advantage there that it's already zoned properly, then we're pretty interested. And it's got to meet a certain size criteria because we don't build less than 100,000 square feet for any one facility. That's awesome, man. And so for the investment side of it, I know you're, you're dealing with investors. You have a very nice presentation. I looked at some of the stuff you sent over. How are you working with investors that want to jump into your projects? Yeah, so... Most people find us on social media right now. And it's just Cornell Capital Holdings with an S.com. You can log in there, fill out your profile, and then you're in my investor network. So I'll connect with you directly or one of my direct staff just to kind of profile you and go through the, the paces to see who you are, what you're looking to accomplish, let you know how we do things to see if that's a right fit even to begin with to do business together. And then once you're in the network, you get access to every deal that we're doing the due diligence on and putting out along with all of my kind of thought leadership and educational process and that type of thing. So um, that's the best way. Reach out to us, cornellcapitalholdings.com. Submit yourself to be in the network and you know, you're in along for the ride with us. That's awesome, man. And I know a lot of people worry because there was obviously a bit of an economic turn, which I think everybody was expecting on some level. Obviously, they didn't know it was going to be because of a pandemic. But that whole like, you know, 10 to 12 year cycle, whereas 2006, everything kind of dumped down. What are you seeing as far as how storage facilities have, have held up over economic downturns like the last one in this current one? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one of my favorite things about storage. So there's there's a study called the history of returns, which if you haven't seen it, it it's the last hundred years, 
literally takes into account every single individual asset class and subcategory of asset class. And self-storage over the last hundred years had held up the best in market downturns. In 2008, it was down 4%. That means the value of the facility. It doesn't mean your income went down at all, but the value of the facility you were invested in went down 4% versus the S&P 500 was down 37% in the year 2008. So um, historically, people aren't pulling out of their storage unit because relative to their total income, it's a smaller percentage of cost. So it doesn't affect the supply demand metrics there when things go bad in the economy. In fact, usually it picks up in, a, in an economic downturn because people might be downsizing, you know, that type of thing. So um, it holds up extremely well. That's, you know, really when I look at investments, I'm always looking for the best risk adjusted return. Self-storage is by far the best risk-adjusted return within the real estate realm that I can find. So, and I would I would argue that against any publicly traded investment too. So that's exactly why I started this firm. That's why I've chosen to focus on what I do right now. It won't always be just that, but it is for the moment, for the most part. Um, and we'll see how things play out. That's awesome, and I agree. I never thought of that. Obviously, if if something does go south they're downsizing and they're, they're moving across. They're not going to be able to be like, well, I'll just, things are terrible. I'll buy a bigger house to keep our stuff in. So that way I don't have to use the storage facility anymore. Like it's not going to happen. It's going to be the opposite. That's right. Yeah. That, that's really cool. Awesome. Well, this has been great, man. I appreciate it. What I like to do here is I call it the victory lap and just kind of wrap this up with a few final questions before I let you go for the day. One of our first questions being, do you have a favorite book? Do I have a favorite book? Um, Think and Grow Rich is always one of my favorites. Um, Right now I'm reading Mark Evans' newest book, The Me Economy, that's pretty awesome too. So um, there's a favorite and a recent favorite that, that hits home for me. Cool, awesome. Mark's book actually came yesterday, so I'll post a picture of that today and tag him in it, but I've heard really good things about that. Shout out to Michael Burns, he was the first one. I guess he did a, uh, uh, I think he went on like the recent Yacht Mastermind that he had there and uh, Mark gave out a bunch of copies and he was like, dude, this one's a game changer, it's awesome. So I hear great things. So I'll definitely post a link for that as well. What's one of your favorite quotes? Oh man, um, what gets measured gets managed. I mean, that kind of sums up how I, how I operate my business. So, you know, that's something that's stuck with me for a long time. Ever wanted to play the drums or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real Mackenzies, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He has played all over the world and he is also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today. From Dan, all you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to 833-632-0585. Again, text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-632-0585 for your free online drum lesson.
That's great, man. That's something that I need to do more of. So that's going to be my takeaway from this one is I'm going to write that somewhere. So I see it every day. That's huge. Back to KPIs and stuff. So um, knowing what you know now about life and business, what would you tell a younger you today? Think bigger, go harder. Don't, I mean, the biggest thing that's, that holds everybody back is self-doubt, you know? I mean, that's, that's something that I've, I've worked on and I've spent a lot of money on masterminds and positive thinking and all of that type of stuff. And I think that's helped me reach the level of success I had. I wish I would have done that younger and I wish I would have had a bigger thought process and gotten around a bigger, bigger audience that's doing things on a much higher level. I think that held me back for quite a while, quite honestly. So if I could go back and do that again, that's what I'd be doing. I love that, man. I think, you know, masterminds are such an interesting thing because you have two, two reactions to it. Either people say, I would never pay that amount of money to, to do that. Or people say like, I can't afford not to do that type of thing. And obviously the biggest players I know are in multiple masterminds and, uh, you know, the, like I said, people keep shouting out Mark Evans a lot and shouting out Collective Genius, but it's always funny, no matter how big somebody is or how well they're doing, they always tell me like, hey, if you really want to feel like you're not doing anything, you know, go into this room. The owner of Levi's makes yeah. 300000 a week, like doing X, Y, and Z. So I think it it's really good for keeping you humble as an investor and, and keeping you in a point of keeping your ego in check and knowing that there's so much more to learn and making sure that you're willing to do that. Because it could be discouraging walking in and being like low on the totem pole when you're used to walking around being like a kingpin everywhere else in your own market. How much has that helped you with um, a belief of seeing like what could be done and bouncing off and using those resources that are around you? Because I feel like that's another mistake people do is they go to masterminds and then they don't consume the content or they overconsume the content and they never really do anything with the relationship that they've made in those rooms. Yeah, I mean, first of all, <clears throat> You can, you can get sucked into a false sense of security pretty quickly, especially if you're a big fish in a small pond. And I think, you know, on some level, that was me for quite a while until I started putting myself in a big ass pond with a lot of big <laughs> fish that I had. To, and I'm a competitive person by nature. So if you are as well, you'll definitely resonate with the mastermind type of situation and mentality. So you've got you've to rise to the occasion, right? Um, and the second thing, and it goes back to what we talked about before is you have to take action. You can't just be in the group and think that something's going to happen for you just because you have the knowledge and you don't act on it. That's a waste. So you have to take action and, and leverage that group and the resources as much as you possibly can. Awesome. And last question for you is I deal with a lot of people that are willing or looking to get into something regardless whether it's real estate or jujitsu or chasing a passion doing something different that's quote-unquote risky and they don't have the support of their family or their spouse or their friends or their loved ones what advice would you give to somebody in that boat that's looking to do something and they don't have the support of their loved ones that's a great question man you know i think if you can and this is something i've worked on a lot the last few years if you can really define your not what it is you do but why you do it what is your why? What is your driving force for doing it? That can turn into all of the ambition and momentum that you need. So if you really can connect with what you're doing and know that you're making an impact, that pushes you 10 times further than, you know, having to rely on outside resources to kind of get you moving. I think that's great, man. And I've seen it time after time that, you know, people go from the doghouse to the hero pretty quick, you know, once they see that they're doing stuff. And, uh, I find with investments a lot of the time, I'm sure you come across the same thing. Hey, somebody wants to jump in and they're all in and then they go, 
let me just talk to my wife. I'll call you back tomorrow. Yeah. And my wife's like, you're doing what? No way. So you know, it, it's a realistic thing people deal with all the time. But this has been awesome, man. I've been really looking forward to getting you on and talking with you. It's been a while since I saw you. So it's been really great catching yeah. up. Same, um, how do people find you um, if they want to reach out to you? I know you gave the website, but are you on social media, Instagram, Facebook, any of the fun places? All that. You can find Cornell Capital Holdings and myself personally on Instagram and Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, my email is Dana at CornellCapitalHoldings.com. Always happy to have a conversation with anyone, even if it's just advice and I can help somebody kind of navigate a situation. Um, and you've got the, the website, which is just Cornell Capital Holdings with an S.com. So appreciate it, man. This has been fun. Again. Obviously, anybody listening, if you go on the show notes for this episode, I'm going to post live links to all your social media for your website, for all the ways to find you and find your company. And I was looking around at your website, man. There's a lot of really good info on there on projects you're working on and expectations and stuff. So if you guys are interested, definitely go on and check that out. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Definitely. This has been awesome, man. Any final thoughts before I let you go? I don't think so. I think we covered a lot. You know, I think this <laughs> is, this is, uh, I hope it comes through that this is certainly a passion of mine to help people connect with how to really truly build wealth. So I appreciate you having me on to, to tell my story and kind of let it come full circle. And, you know, we'll see where we'll get on again in six months and see where we're at at that point. So I would love that, man. Open invitation. Obviously, like I said, you left a, a permanent mark on me from just hearing you speak for an hour. So I think you're very good at what you do. You come off very sincere and you're extremely intelligent. So I thank you for your time. Data Cornell, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Definitely.